everyone. Welcome back to the living world. I hope you're all doing well. I am, that's for sure. My kid, my, sorry, my cats. I have, my, I have three cats. Well, my parents have three cats, but one of my cats, his name is Queso. He's sitting right behind me and they're British blue short hairs actually. So they're super cute. If you guys haven't seen a picture of them, you could, you could look, you could look them up. He's sitting right behind me right now in this little cat perch, and he's so cute. Uh, I, I want to put a picture of him on my page somewhere, but I won't, <laughs> as this is an academic show. But I'd love to, that's for sure. He just left me, so now I'm back. But I hope you're all doing well. I had a pretty good weekend, actually. We went and visited some friends. Um, they live about an hour from where I'm at. They have this this big farmhouse and they've got like 10 acres of land, giant yard, and they've got uh, a coop of chickens. So they get fresh eggs every morning and they have these two dogs and they're, they're pretty nice dogs. I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a dog person, but I mean, I'd like to be every now and then. I mean, I see all the people walking around St. Andrews with dogs and I'm just like, ah, cause it looks so fun. But yeah, if any of you guys have dogs, you can let me know how that is. Or if your parents have dogs or whatever, because they're cute. They're cute. Anyways, uh, I guess I'll go on to the show material. Cause, but I mean, you guys enjoyed hearing about my cats, right? They're super cute. Anyways, uh, the school I chose to research this week is um, uh, University Putra Malaysia, which is in... Uh, clearly Malaysia. And I was partly inspired to pick this week's school because there was a new Disney movie released um, on Friday. Yeah, Friday. And it's this new Disney princess movie. And I love Disney movies, by the way. I'm on the Disney Society and I'm actually the secretary for the club, which is pretty fun. I've never really been involved that much in club or society politics, so... I, I like it. But anyways, they, they just released this new Disney movie and it's it's based off of uh, Southeast Southeast Asian influences. So I thought, why not have a uh, Southeast Asian university for this week? And uh, funnily enough, it's also International Women's Day today. So happy International Women, Women's Day, which is great. Uh, my mom... If there hadn't been COVID, she was going to host a International Women's Day event, but that's not happening now. Uh, but I hope you guys enjoy that today. And yeah, and if you've seen the new Disney movie, let me know how it is because I want to watch it. But it costs like 20 bucks to watch because you have to get a Disney Plus subscription and everything. But I, I want to see it so bad. It looks so good. Anyways, on to... The research for this week. Uh, so I'm firstly for my first article for this week. I'm going to be talking about this bacterial disease called uh, leptospirosis, which I've never actually heard of. It's actually classified as a neglected tropical disease, uh, and there there's a bunch of them. Like they they're all grouped together into the neglected tropical diseases because there's a lot of uh, diseases in the tropic tropical areas. And this uh, leptospirosis, actually, it affects both humans and animals, and it's caused 
um, by many different types of bacteria that all belong to the Leptospira family. So if you guys know any basic taxonomy, you go, uh, what's it? Kingdom, domain, uh, phylum, class, order, genus, something like that. I feel like I should know this, but I don't. But yeah, so there's all these bacteria. They belong to this Leptospira family. And these are the bacteria that cause leptospirosis. And I mentioned leptospirosis is a neglected tropical disease, and it is known to be endemic in many different tropical areas. And endemic means that this disease originated in this specific place, and it that's where that's where it originated from. And um, so far, the number of different bacterial strains that cause this disease, um, most recent numbers that I've read said that um, it got up to about 64 different types of bacteria. And there's about 1 million cases of this disease each year. And I mentioned it's a tropical disease, so these occur in tropical areas. And um, while there are a million cases, about 60,000 people die yearly from this disease. And how you might get infected by... Uh, this disease and later develop leptospirosis is it mainly comes from other um, animals. So I mentioned that both humans and animals can get infected with this disease, and this is how the the bacteria transmits because it's a zoonotic disease, and zoonotic means a bacteria or disease that can be transferred easily between humans and animals, and that's how you later get mutations that can later lead from uh, bacteria in an animal developing to become a infection in humans. And uh, so humans, if we, of course, if we come into contact with uh, wild or domesticated animals, these can include rats, uh, raccoons, pigs, dogs, etc. And these animals might carry this uh, bacterium how we might get infected is uh, mainly because the bacterium is spread through urine. Uh, so say you go on a hike in a tropical forest and you're uh, walking and you cross a river and you trip and you fall into the river and you drink the, the river water. Now, if there was an animal that had been infected with leptospirosis, and uh, had urinated into this water, then the bacterium could be living in that tropical river and you wouldn't even know it. And this is how most people get infected, either through um, ingesting different freshwater sources, so water from rivers or lakes, or if you're in an area and there's a big flood, uh, that is another way also. And a really interesting example that I read about while looking into this mentioned um, a, a type of um, race that happened in uh, 2000 and this is called this was called the uh, eco challenge adventure race and it was hosted in Malaysia and there were people um, due to the nature of the race who, had been going through a bunch of various freshwater sources, and they later actually developed leptospirosis. And funnily enough, this eco-challenge adventure race is something my dad 
has actually been considering doing. They had one, um, uh, I think in 2019 in Fiji. I think it's on Amazon Prime. It's called like Eco Challenge. You can go, you can go and watch it. But the main goal of the race is you're you start in one place and you're given a map and you need to navigate and find these different like checkpoints and you do a bunch of different activities like running and biking and uh, kayaking etc 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 and whichever team finishes in the quickest amount of time and gets the most number of points wins so my dad has been doing this adventure racing thing for years he's never done an eco challenge but we watched a few episodes of the the Fiji one on Amazon and it, it, it seemed pretty cool it seemed pretty cool it was televised and my dad actually knew some of the people that participated in that so it was pretty cool for me and I mentioned that uh, some of the people doing the 2000 Eco Challenge in Malaysia developed leptospirosis. So that that's that's not good. That's that's not good. And this um, the bacteria that causes this disease, they're able to survive for a long time in the soil. And I mentioned that animals are the main method of how people get infected. Now you might think, oh, I can identify this in different animals, but no, it's it's not it's not that easy. Because some animals that are infected with this bacterium, they might not show any symptoms. So that makes it kind of hard for for us to be able to identify if they have this bacterium or not. And uh, again, how you're infected mainly is if you drink uh, fresh water or if you have cuts on your body and uh, the bacteria enters either through these cuts or when you ingest water and it gets past the mucous membranes in your body and the mucous membranes in your body by the way are um, they count they're, they're counted as your mouth and your nose where you have like mucousy fluids or whatever kind of yeah and uh, a, a good thing is there's not a lot of person-to-person -person transmission of this uh, leptospirosis disease. So the bacterium doesn't really transmit easily from person to person. You you get it from a, a water source primarily. Uh, but rats are a big concern because they live um, pretty in in sometimes pretty large populations in in urban areas. And, and as you're already guessing, the urban slum areas of different uh, parts of the world, those can be a big uh, potential source of risk for, uh, because you have a bunch of rats living in these areas and you have people and rats living in close proximity. And uh, so this is why leptospirosis can also be known as the uh, rat urine disease because of um, the high rates of transmission from from yeah from rats to humans. And also, if you live in a in a, a place in a tropical area uh, with uh, poor levels of sanitation, that that doesn't help as well because, as I said, this bacterium is transmitted through freshwater sources. So. Sanitation is a big thing to have. Now you're wondering, probably now, what? How do I know if I have leptospirosis? Because I mean, yeah, I'm like, I, 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 I didn't know until I read about it. But uh, the the symptoms for this disease 
actually aren't like they're not like oh this is this one disease and you get this one thing they they can be pretty like common to start out with so like you get the you get the the bacterium right and you get infected now the incubation period for the bacterium that causes leptospirosis it's about 7 to 12 days on average before you sh before you start showing symptoms but i in my reading i saw that uh, symptoms can develop as quickly as 3 days after you're infected or it can take as long as a month so the time zone for this really kind of varies now i mentioned that the symptoms for leptospirosis are like kind of general and what i mean by like general symptoms is when you get infected what i read said that uh, you normally start by developing a kind of like a fever or like chills or headache or whatever and and if your symptoms get worse uh, you could develop vomiting or diarrhea and really the worst symptoms that come out from this are uh, namely one liver failure and two uh, kidney issues, kidney, kidney, kidney failure, liver, liver failure. And of course, uh, the worst of course, is if you end up dying from leptospirosis, but again, that doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. And symptoms, um, can come in two different stages or they present as one type of stage or the other type of stage. So you have like phase one symptoms, which are less severe, that includes fevers, headache, etc. And you're you're likely to recover from these because they're not the bad symptoms, but you do have a likelihood of becoming sick again if you catch um, the bacterium from a source. Now, the phase two of these symptoms are, of course, they're more severe, and this could lead to you potentially developing uh, kidney or liver failure. And um, if either of these get bad enough, the bacterium could later cause for you to develop uh, meningitis. And meningitis is uh, basically swelling of the brain. And all of this is bad, for sure. But one clear sign that I found in my research um, that is for sure leptospirosis is something called uh, conjunctive conjunctival suffusion and this is when your eyes turn red you can you can look it up you can you look up uh conjunctival suffusion leptospirosis and you'll see a bunch of pictures of people with like really red eyes and it does not look very comfortable but this is one of the the more clear signs that you know that you might have leptospirosis but uh i mentioned that this disease mainly has pretty kind of general symptoms and it is uh sometimes easily confused with other diseases. Now, the issue is there's no, and mainly with no treatment for leptospirosis, recovering from the disease could take many months. And of course, as you, as you age, as people age, the, rise, the, the increase in the potential for, for death from catching this disease increases, clearly. Um, and if, and you can identify if someone has leptospirosis by doing a variety of tests. Uh, these pretty much include seeing if the person has antibodies to the bacterium, or if you find the bacterium in a uh, body fluid test. And if you take a blood test, 
in your like hospital. Um, the uh, you can figure out if you have leptospirosis in the blood, but it takes about you need to wait about five to seven days until after your symptoms start to then go get tested and then oh you'll get a positive blood test. Now, good thing is there is a vaccine for this. Um, it's it's available for dogs, so you give it to your dog and they won't get it and they might not spread it. Now there is a vaccine that's been developed for people to take, but the issue is it doesn't last very long and it only really works against one or two, like oh, like a few, only a few 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 uh, strains of the uh, Leptospira bacteria that cause this disease. And really, the only people that get this vaccine because it's there's not a lot of it and it doesn't work super well are the people who are at the most risk. Now, there has been some work on this, um, trying to develop it into clinical trials for commercial use, but um, even though there's been a bunch of money put in, those haven't been going very well. And you can look it up. You can look up leptospirosis vaccine, and that's what I did. And it it was going, the work on that vaccine development, but it wasn't like, oh, yay, we have a commercial version available. So yeah, now you guys know about leptospirosis. And... Uh, so the study that focused on this uh, leptospirosis, it was published uh, almost a year ago now, back on uh, March 23rd in 2020. And this study uh, had researchers from uh, University Putra, Malaysia. Uh, there were people from uh, Queen's University in Belfast in Ireland. Uh, and there were uh, also some researchers from... Uh, Bharatha Dazan University in India, and a few other places as well. There were like, I think, 10 or 15 authors on this. And what these researchers found, actually, pretty, 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 pretty helpful. They found uh, the two types of bacteria in that Leptospira uh, family that cause the most cases of leptospirosis in Malaysia. So out of all those 64 bacteria species, spe species I mentioned, these researchers found the two that caused the most number of cases. And that's really good because you can go, um, you, can look, you can look into this as a scientist or as a medical professional and be like, okay, these are the two types. Now we need to focus on uh, treating them. And this is great. This is great that these researchers found this. And what they also discovered was they found a new uh, lept leptospira bacterium uh, species that's able to infect humans. So I guess that adds the count up to, what, 65 different types now? Um, and of course, I mentioned there's been... Um, there, there's, there's been a bit of issue with trying to diagnose leptospirosis, and that was highlighted in this uh, news release on this paper because that is a big thing. If we're able to identify the disease quicker, then that helps everyone. And, of course, there needs to be more work done on this uh, identification of leptospirosis, but it is kind of coming along. And if you guys want to look into these uh 
into this kind of work a little more, the two specific uh, bacteria strains that these researchers found that are the causative ones in Malaysia, they are referred to as Leptospira interrogans and Leptospira uh, kirschneri. So if you want to look at either of those, you can pop them into Google and read up. And all this is great. It's it's pretty promising stuff. But, I mean, clearly, as you can see, there needs to be a lot more work done on leptospirosis to help all these people who are impacted by it um, living or visiting in these tropical regions. But, I mean, it is kind of coming along. That's, that's great. That's great. Okay, I just want to move on now to second article for for today. And this one is kind of similar to the article I talked about last week, where I talked about uh, sponges and how they were um, monitoring or used as monitors for uh, micro pollutants. Uh, this specific study was a it's a, it's a bit older. It was. Uh, published back in 2014, but it looked at um, the use of crabs' uh, exoskeleton shells uh, to clean out water sources. So I just briefly, before I talk any more about the study, I just briefly want to explain, like, you know, the life cycle of crabs and how their shells form, because I, like, didn't, I, I didn't really know how that worked. I just thought that you know oh maybe crabs are kind of like turtles but they're not they're clearly not and it's also good to learn about like you know some developmental biology stuff like how crabs grow and everything and just for an example i'm just going to talk kind of briefly about the blue crab um, because that was one of the crabs i could actually find some information on about how it develops and I'm just going to talk really briefly about how that crab develops so you guys have a better understanding of uh, how a crab's shell forms and why it's important in scientific research. So, uh, blue crabs, um, I, I, I didn't know why they were called, called blue crabs to, per se, but uh, they're actually called this because if you, look up, if you look up a picture of them on the internet, they have... You, they have like this light blue color on their arms and on the back of their shells. So they're actually really pretty. Like they're like white and blue and red and they're they're gorgeous. They're, they're gorgeous. I've never seen one, but I I I'd love to, I'd love to see one at some point. And their average lifespan is about three to four years. And they're a really really popular species of crab. Uh, that's used by humans because they're they're used a lot in um, uh, for consumption, and they they don't weigh that much actually. They only weigh like a third of a pound. I don't I don't know what that is in grams. A pound is sixteen ounces. I don't know, but that's not like super heavy. Uh, they're not like the big crabs like the um what's it like the Arctic crabs like you find like Norway, Russia. Those are those are big. Those are big crabs. And these blue crabs, they're native to the Atlantic coast. So their uh, native range goes from like Canada all the way down to uh, the Gulf of Mexico, South America. And um, there actually are a lot of blue crabs that live in the Chesapeake Bay, which is off the coast of um, here in Virginia. There's a lot of them that live there. 
That's well, well, that's one of my sources they talked about, the blue crabs in the Chesapeake Bay. But how a blue crab starts its life is it starts um, as an egg. So you, you take a fertilized crab egg. Excuse me. And these fertilized eggs are kept by the female um, as they develop. And I didn't know this, but blue crabs and probably other species of crabs, they actually have a tail. Like a full-grown crab has a tail. Like it's kind of folded in to their body. I looked, it's folded into their body, but I didn't know that they had a tail. I'm like, what? Crabs have a tail? What? But it is, it is kind of cool. I didn't know that, frankly. Uh, but yeah, so the female crab will store her eggs under this, under her tail. And they actually produce a lot of a lot, a lot of eggs. So the numbers that I got ranged from about 700,000 to 3 million eggs per, per brood, which like, so every time the female, uh, basically, uh, reproduces and develops more crab eggs, she makes that many up to 3 million. That's nuts. That is crazy. I didn't know, I thought crabs maybe had like, you know, like, oh, like a hundred eggs and that was it. Nope, they have millions. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, and for a crab to develop, um, so it goes from egg stage and then eventually the crab will hatch from the egg and it will be a larva and... Uh, this larval crab will go through a variety of larva stages, and this takes about 30 to 50 days. And uh, actually, when the crab is in its larval stage, it doesn't look at all like it like an adult crab. It's it's crazy. And this larval stage is also referred to as the zoeal stage, Z-O-E-A-L, and the crab is known as a zoeal larva. And even when it's a larva, the crab has an exoskeleton. And an exoskeleton is the the hard stuff on the outside of different animals. Uh, I think it's all arthropods. They have this exoskeleton. And it's really hard, and it protects them from predators. And these larval crabs, actually, they have this exoskeleton. And on this exoskeleton, they have little spikes, and these little spikes help to protect them as they're swimming around. And they also have tail, so, like, more of a tail than the adult crab. It's, like, you know, kind of like a tiny lobster tail, like, they have a tail. And to also help these larvae, larval crabs hide from different predators, they are uh, transparent, so that's pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> they're definitely harder to see that way. And as this crab... Uh, develops in its larval stage and as it develops through its life it it grows and its exoskeleton it because it's a hard thing it doesn't grow with the crab so as the crab grows it needs to form a new uh, exoskeleton and it uses uh, different minerals from the water to form its exoskeleton and when and while the crab is a uh, larva it uh, from what I read, it, it seems like it feeds on uh, either plankton or algae because it's pretty small. And once the crab finishes its larval stage, uh, it will then enter it uh, what's called the megalops stage. And uh, when the crab is a, I guess a, what's it, a megalop, uh, it, it needs to molt its exoskeleton 
about four to five different times um, as, a, as a larva before it hits this megalops stage. Because that's what you do when you have an exoskeleton, because it doesn't grow with you, you have to molt it off. And when the crab is in a megalops stage, it has legs that look more like crab legs. It still has a tail. Uh, you can look up a picture. It looks kind of creepy, like a weird mutant dragonfly. But it does. It, it looks more like a crab. And this stage lasts um, about 6 to 20 days. And uh, the crab's a bit bigger now. And it will, it will head after the megalops stage down to the uh, ocean or uh, lake floor. I think, I think crabs are probably marine and freshwater. I don't know. But uh, after megalops stage, the crab will head down and it will be now referred to as a juvenile crab. And this is when the crab actually looks like a crab because its tail... Um, kind of folds under its body now but while the crab's a juvenile it's still pretty small like a few millimeters and they have some color now the blue crabs i i know it might vary with different crabs but the blue crabs from what i saw they have color and once crabs are now juvenile crabs their diet changes a bit and they now become um omnivorous so this means they're omnivores and they eat plants or other animals and the crab will continue to molt its exoskeleton and grow until it hits adult size. And uh, so reaching adult, adult size for blue crabs, at least, takes about 18 to 20 cycles of molting their exoskeleton. And the general size that they reach is uh, uh, from like five to five and a half inches long. And this takes about a year. And um, every time the crab molts, the, the amount of size that it is able to grow and the, the size of its exoskeleton varies on different uh, water factors. So like water temperature, water salinity, and it also depends on different environmental factors. And the crab's diet as an adult ranges from, you know, like fish mollusks, or other crabs even. And the interesting thing that I learned also is that crab molting can be stopped if the water gets too warm or too cold. So the crabs have to have this like uh, ideal temperature that they, that they grow and they molt in. Uh, but what I also didn't know is that one, when female crabs reach um, maturity, so like they reach their final adult size, they don't molt anymore. And this, this um, finalization of their growth also indicates that they're sexually mature. So it's pretty interesting because you've got these female crabs that when they reach their adult size, they don't molt. And um, male crabs know this, so they will go and try to find uh either female crabs that are about to molt and are about adult size or ones that have just molted to go and uh, reproduce with them, basically. I didn't know that. That male crabs kind of, like, track the females around and be like, what you do in there? <laughs> That's pretty cool. I didn't know. Yeah, so I mentioned that the study uh, focused on using crab shells to clean out different water supplies. And, and it does. Uh, 
The researchers involved in the study, they were all from University Putra, Malaysia. And I mentioned that the study was a bit old, um, published in 2014, but that's not like old, old, but it feels old to me. It's so weird we're in 2021. I still feel like I'm like <laughs> 16, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm almost 20. It's weird. It's really weird. Anyways, this, the study was published back in uh, January of 2014, and um, these researchers, they were looking for alternative methods to treat um, and clean out wastewater, because wastewater is a big thing. And um, if you get wastewater into the ground, groundwater, uh, various water sources, this can lead to water pollution, and that's a big issue. So these researchers were um, they were doing their, their work, and they looked specifically at bioabsorbents. And bioabsorbents are natural materials that are able to clean up polluted water. So they're a bit of a more environmentally friendly way to clean water sources. So I mentioned these, these, these scientists, they looked at using crab shells to clean out uh, water, and that's exactly what they did. They uh, took crab shells and they grounded them up and they tested their effectiveness on cleaning up wastewater. And what I didn't know actually is that crab shells are normally considered to be kind of like a waste product from restaurants. So, you know, you're served a crab uh, to eat. I've never really eaten crabs, so I wouldn't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know entirely how that works, but you're given a crab, right? And you eat the meat inside. You don't eat the exoskeleton. exoskeleton. And the exoskeleton is is what's taken and, and thrown out. So it's pretty cool that these researchers uh, took these crab shells and they tested them to see if they have an alternative use. And they found they had an alternative use. Pretty cool. Um, they used specifically uh, crab shells from a species of crab called uh, Scylla serrata, which is also referred to as the giant mud crab. And uh, these giant mud crabs live primarily in regions that have a bunch of mangroves. Um, so tropical regions, and they live in these uh, mangrove tropical regions in Asia. And they're pretty abundant in Asia, these giant mud crabs. So these researchers took these uh, giant mud crab shells, and uh, they grounded them up, and uh, they tested their effectiveness as a bioabsorbent in water uh, saturated with uh, different levels of metals. So th these researchers looked specifically at um, different levels of, of copper and cadmium. Now, uh, the issue with these two metals is that if you have too much copper um, in the water, this can lead to you developing a bit of nausea. Um, cadmium is the more dangerous metal to have in water because if you have too much of it, it can lead to uh, toxic effects uh, to your um, kidneys. And these researchers found actually that um, these crab shells were pretty efficient at removing uh, these copper and cadmium um, elements. And they, they tested a bunch of different scenarios of different uh, types of, of water with different levels of copper and cadmium. The levels of these metals ranged from about 5 to 20 percent. Um, and this is at 5 to 20 percent copper 
and or cadmium saturated water. And they took these ground up shells and they found that after about six hours of exposure in these saturated waters, the shells removed up to about 95% of the copper in the water and about 85% of the cadmium in six hours, which is crazy. I mean, that's awesome. And what I found while reading about this was how these shells did this was um, because of what they're made of, the crab shells. And crab shells are made of, um, they're made of uh, two different things. They're, they're made of uh, calcium carbonate, which is present in the, which is, uh, is formed by um, taking uh, different uh, compounds in the ocean and uh, uh, marine animals will take them and form calcium carbonate. And this calcium carbonate forms strong bonds with the metals. And the other component in the crab shells that was also beneficial in removing the metals, it's called uh, uh, chitin, uh, C-H-I-T-I-N. And this is a biopolymer, so a biological polymer, which is used in uh, the building and development of exoskeletons. So both of these, uh, the, the chitin and the calcium carbonate, were the main things that removed all this copper and cadmium. And this is this is great. This, this is great. I mean, I don't know um, where development is now with this kind of stuff to see if they're trying to make it. So people use crab shells and they take them and use them commercially. But it's, it's still pretty promising to see that crab shells can be used to remove copper and cadmium from the water. That's awesome. And I, it, it seems pretty promising t- to see if we could maybe test this with other types of animal exoskeletons. Yeah, so I just want to move on now to my last article. And I think you guys will like it. I, 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 I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, it's it's about uh, bees again. And if you remember, one of my earlier episodes was about me talking about bees um, now, I'm not talking about honeybees, per se. I'm talking about, this time, a study that was done um, on stingless bees. So these are bees that don't have stingers, so they can't sting you. And this study looked at the effects of um, stingless bee honey. And I'll get into that soon, but I just briefly want to cover stingless bees and how they live and everything. Because I didn't know there were bees that didn't sting. I kind of thought that, you know, they were all like honeybees, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. It's, it's pretty funny. Uh, and what's also crazy is there's, I found there's about 500 different species of stingless bees, which is nuts. I thought, oh, you know, maybe there's like five and uh, there's there's not that many, but there's about 500, which is crazy. And this is about 50 times the species diversity of honeybees. So they are more diverse than honeybees, but they're less known about. And it's crazy because there's more species of these stingless bees, but there hasn't been the same level of research. So we don't know about them as much as we do honeybees. Now, there are two different uh, genuses of these stingless bees. Um, they fall either into the uh, genus uh, Trigona 
or the genus Melipona. And uh, just so you know, uh, Melipona, the Melipona stingless, stingless bee genus, which of course I didn't know either of these, but this Melipona genus contains stingless bees that are actually larger than normal honeybees, which which is nuts. You can you can look a picture you can look up a picture of of these bees and be like, whoa, they're big. <laughs> and uh, these stingless bees, they're all tropical species. They live in um, warmer areas such as Australia, uh, Brazil, there's some in Malaysia, and there's also some species in Mexico. Now, uh, I looked primarily at the ones in Australia because there's more data on them. And Australia has 11 different species of stingless bees. And their stingless bees aren't the ones that are bigger than honeybees. They're really small. Uh, they're really small, as I said. They're about 4 millimeters um, in length, which is tiny, and these bees are uh, generally they're black, and they can have fur on their faces, which is kind of funny, <laughs> and they can also have yellow markings. So, I mean, the main way you tell these Australian stingless bees apart is by their size, and they actually make pretty interestingly shaped nests. They make their nests primarily in uh, dead trees, but some of their nests are spiral shaped, and you can look this up on the internet. They're really, they're really gorgeous. It's like a, it's like looking at a Christmas tree, like looking down on a Christmas tree. It's got that same like spirally, circly effect, but it's with a beehive, which is which is awesome. And I, I mentioned that um, the study focused on looking at. These, this, the, the honey produced by stingless bees. And they do produce honey, which I didn't know. I, I thought, okay, okay, fine, we have stingless bees, but they don't make honey. But that's not true. They make honey. And they don't make as much as honeybees, which kind of makes sense. I guess they're smaller. But they do make honey. Uh, my research, I found that uh, they make about one to two liters of their honey uh, per hive per year. And this honey tastes differently to honeybee honey. Um, the, the literature I read said it tasted kind of like a citrus, citrusy. So I'm like, Oh, Hey, I kind of want to try that. See, you put on the citrusy honey with like, um, oranges and you make like a cake with it and all, oh, it must be amazing. Uh, but yeah, I said they don't make as much honey as normal honeybees. And, this is pretty evident because I said, okay, stingless bees, they make one to two liters a year. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. But you compare this to normal honeybees, they make about 70 liters of honey a year. So that's a big, big difference. And uh, so they make this honey. Great. Yeah. And uh, these stingless bees are also really important um, in uh, to the... Um, to indigenous uh, populations of people. Because I mentioned that stingless bees, they live in places like Australia and Brazil and Mexico. And um, yeah, they're really important to indigenous uh, populations and indigenous people. And uh, the, the bees that live in Mexico, they're native to the... Um, to the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, which is where the Mayan civilization developed. And the Mayans used these stingless bees uh, 
Um, they use their honey mainly for uh, medicinal purposes, and they also uh, really cared about watching over the bees and taking care of them and being beekeepers. And there's actually mention to uh, stingless bees in the Mayan literature. So um, of the three um, Mayan codexes, which I found are a thing, actually, there is one codex that talks about stingless bees, and this codex is specifically referred to as the Madrid Codex, and it talks about the care instructions for stingless bees. So the Mayans wrote about stingless bees thousands of years ago, which is crazy because it shows that these bees have been so important and that they've been around for a while. Now, there aren't that many um, uh, people, uh, Mayan uh, descendant, descended people who still follow these traditional beekeeping practices. But again, these bees have been a part of life in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula for a while. There has been some issue because these stingless bees have been uh, dying off in the Yucatan Peninsula due mainly to pesticides and weather and developments and stuff. But uh, the good thing is um, it's been found that these bees, they've been relocated to Cuba and they've been able to kind of flourish there. So that's that's great. So it's saving the stingless bee species in Mexico. It's, it's awesome. And I mentioned that the Mayans uh, used the stingless bee honey for medicinal purposes. And this uh, medical importance of the honey is what was studied by these researchers. Because they wanted to look at, oh, what are the medical benefits of this honey? And uh, this study... Uh, pretty recent, actually, published uh, back in July 2020, on uh, July 22nd. And this study involved uh, researchers from uh, University Putra, Malaysia, and the University of Queensland. So, <laughs> shout out to my other episode on the University of Queensland. Some more info that you guys can look at. Super cool. And uh, these researchers, uh, they um, got some advice from uh different um, indigenous people and uh, populations uh, and they looked specifically at uh, they got they got information from the indigenous um, aboriginal populations in Australia and uh, they got a tip from them about the health health benefits of this stingless bee honey and while analyzing this honey the researchers found that it was composed of this rare healthier, uh, kind of sugar. And they tested the different stingless bee honey uh, from the Malaysian, Australian, and Brazilian stingless bee populations. And this uh, rare sugar that they found in this honey, it's called trehalulose. And um, what these researchers originally thought was that the stingless bee honey was made of a different kind of sugar called maltose. And sugars, by the way, are, um, they're, how they're referred to is um, if they end in O-S-E, they're a sugar. So just future reference. But these researchers thought that this stingless bee honey was made mainly of maltose. But they found after analysis that it wasn't. It was made more of this uh, trehalulose tre sugar. And what's important about uh, 
this trehalulose sugar is that it's not found in high amounts in other kinds of foods. And, um, and it's really, it's really good health-wise because it has um, a low glycemic index or GI. And uh, the good thing about a low glycemic index, aka a low sugar index, is that um, having a low glycemic index means um, this is good for um, people who have uh, diabetes because diabetes as you guys know, <laughs> is issues with um, the breakdown of sugar in the blood. And what's good about foods like trehalulose with a low glycemic index is that uh, this sugar, it takes longer to break down in the body. And this is good for diabetics because the, the longer it takes to break down a sugar, um, the less chance you have of getting a spike in your blood sugar and that leading to a potential health issue. So, um, and there was some thought before in the scientific community that stingless bee honey was good for diabetes, but it was a little bit of like, you know, speculation. But now after the publish, the, the publishing of this study, uh, scientists know now know why this stingless bee honey is good for health because of the trehalulose sugar. And what they also found by analyzing the content of this sugar is that, um, this stingless bee honey is also, um, it's also acaryogenic, and acaryogenic means that, um, this honey doesn't cause tooth decay, which is great. I mean, I would love to get my hands on some of that stingless bee honey and try it and, um, not cause potential tooth decay. That'd be great. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, it's great, but, uh, the interesting thing is I mentioned that for every one to two liters of stingless bee honey, you can get about 70 liters a year from honeybees. And because of the lack of honey production from these bees, uh, this makes stingless bee honey rare to obtain and quite expensive. So a comparison is you take, say, some stingless bee honey in Australia because you've got those 11 species of stingless bees and everyone wants to buy some, you might think, oh, it's like 20 bucks because a jar of honey at the store is like, what's it, five bucks? I don't know. It's not that bad. But stingless bee honey, because of the smaller amount that's produced each year by these bees, to get a kilogram of it in Australia, that costs about 200 Australian dollars. Now, I don't know what that is in U.S. dollars, but that's a lot of money for one kilogram of honey. And because of um, this evident rareness and expensiveness of stingless bee honey, it makes it subject to being uh, sold falsely. So, okay, the good stuff, the true stuff, is 200 Australian dollars a kilogram. But you could have the issue where someone saying, oh, I'm selling some stingless bee honey, but it, it could not even be the right stuff. It could be they're selling quote-unquote stingless bee honey, but it's just normal honey. Or the other thing is people could be selling stingless bee honey, but it's not, it's not um, a full normal concentration. They take uh, honey 
and they dilute it. And they sell you the diluted version for the same cost, which isn't good. That, that's not what you want. So there is a bit of issue in that area in terms of selling and profiting from stingless bee honey. But it is, it's interesting for me and, and, and I mean, for you guys, to, for, for all of us to, to learn that this honey exists and, and even though it's expensive, it exists. And, uh, it's, it's great. And these researchers, they found all this great stuff out about this honey. It's great for diabetics. It's not going to hurt your teeth as much, et cetera, et cetera. They are also, uh, with current and future studies, planning to uh, look more into the composition of this honey and study the types of sugars that it's made of. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just great. I mean... I didn't know that there were, one, bees that didn't sting, two, these bees make honey, and three, they make different shaped hives. Like, as I said, Christmas, they're, I'm just going to call them Christmas tree hives. They make Christmas tree hives, and they're cool. They're really cool. I Again, I encourage you guys to take a look at them on the internet. They're super cool. They're awesome. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it, it's good to know about all this. And again, if any of you guys have ever had stingless bee honey, I would like to try it because I, I like honey. I like making, you know, like honey peanut butter toast or, you know, like, uh, having honey and, uh, sugar carrots because those are really good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to try that kind of honey. And I've heard also, I read also that it's, uh, it's becoming a bigger thing used by chefs they use this fancy honey and they make fancy meals out of it. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to try some. So if any of you guys have ever tried some, I'd, I'd love to hear about like how it is and like, like, I mean, yeah. And how you got it, number one, because it's expensive, but it looks super cool. Uh, yeah. So I hope you guys enjoyed uh, episode 12 this week. I, I, I enjoyed talking about all this cool research and, and everything. I hope you guys have a great Sunday and enjoy uh, National Women's Day and, and all that. And as we go into week seven, keep cranking along. I know I am. I've got an essay to work on and everything. But yeah, everything's going along. It's doing great. So yeah, I hope you guys have a great uh, week this week. And just know spring break is coming. I'm very excited for it to come. But spring break is coming. And I hope by then... You guys are in lockdown, that the lockdown might lift, and you can go out and travel around. That would be great. Uh, yeah, so I hope you guys have a great uh, rest of your Sunday and a great week, and I'll see you all next week.